Today we're picking up with the uh, topic of church history, and uh, the topic is not related to the church at all. Uh, it's actually on the rise of Islam, and uh, the effect that that has on church history is really our focus. So uh, we're going to be spending some time this morning talking about the rise of Islam. Uh, let me tell you a quick story. So uh, from time to time in my work history, we would be deployed to a place for a couple of weeks at a time or whatever, and because the, from time to time the kids were homeschooled, we, uh, we took advantage of going to those places and just kind of exploring. I would work during the day, and then we would go explore, and then the weekends we would explore, and uh, there were many, many places we got a chance to go and explore. One of those places is the, ph- the phenomenal metropolitan area that is Detroit, Michigan. And uh, outside of Detroit is um, uh, Dearborn, Michigan, and that's special to me, and here's why. So uh, Sean went to the University of Memphis to study mechanical engineering and uh, graduated as uh, a guy who uh, was focused mon- ma- mainly on power generation, not very uh, interesting at all. But the reason I went into thinking about mechanical engineering was um, the, the raw power of the internal combustion engine, uh, specifically the space program and uh, the shuttle program uh, when I was growing up. And then... Uh, uh, just the, the, the raw power of the internal combustion engine. So when we go to Detroit, it is uh, completely uh, understandable that Sean would want to go to Dearborn and see the Ford International Headquarters and the Henry Ford Museum and the Henry Ford Village. There are some fascinating things at the Henry Ford Museum. The car where uh, John F. Kennedy was, was shot is at that museum. The bus that Rosa Parks rode in protest is at that museum. The chair that Abraham Lincoln sat in at the theater when he was ex- is at that museum. Uh, Buckminster Fuller's uh, 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 structure, his dome structure as part of his uh, architectural prowess is at that museum. If you go to the village, the, the very house of Thomas Edison was picked up from New Jersey, dismantled, taken apart, New Jersey, and moved to Dearborn, Michigan, and they scooped up the ground underneath it and moved it from New Jersey to Dearborn. You might know why. You might know why. Here's why. Um, Ford was a student of Edison's, and Ford loved Edison, and so much so he wanted his uh, boyhood home, the home he grew up in, the home he owned, to be moved to the Henry Ford Village. Um, Edison's requirement was, you can't do it because my home will never leave Jersey soil. It will never, ever leave soil that's in New Jersey. And so he scooped up the soil and took it to Dearborn and sat it down and built the house back on top of it. Here's why all that is being said this morning on a study of the rise of Islam. Uh, As we're exploring Dearborn, Michigan, we move outside of Detroit towards Dearborn, and, and everything changed when we got to Dearborn. Every sign, road sign, every uh, instruction sign, everything that gave you directions as you're driving around was in two languages. The, the, one of the languages was English, and the other one was? It was Arabic. Almost every sign was in Arabic, and sometimes it was swapped. It was Arabic first and then English. And so as I'm driving around Dearborn, Michigan, I, I really uh, could not figure out uh, where I was going, what I was doing sometimes, because the Arabic signs were more dominant than the English signs. And that set old Sean to thinking, why in the world are all the signs in Dearborn, Michigan uh, in Arabic, and sometimes first in Arabic, or primarily in Arabic, and then in English? Does anybody know? 
Anybody know the answer? Why? There are a lot of uh, Islamic or Arabic people that live there. Um, do you know why? Why Dearborn? Anybody know? No? Well, I can help you. Because Sean asks these kinds of questions. Like, why is this? Why is this here? Uh, because the largest mosque in North America is in Dearborn, Michigan. And the reason the largest mosque in North America is in Dearborn, Michigan is because after the uh, Civil War in Lebanon, a flood of refugees came out, and their flight path was out of Lebanon, Beirut, into um, Detroit International Airport, right? Um, what's, what's the name of that airport? Everybody knows. Wayne County or whatever it is. Um, they fled out of Lebanon into Detroit and from Detroit into Dearborn. And the first wave of refugees that came out of Lebanon, if you don't know anything about Lebanon, Lebanon is split. It is half um, Christian and half Muslim. The first wave of refugees that came out were, were Christian. They were just Arabic-speaking Christian Lebanese people who moved into Dearborn, Michigan. The second wave, third wave, fourth wave, fifth wave were all um, Muslim and came into Dearborn and settled there. And so as we were walking around, this is with my kids as we were younger, walking around Dearborn, Michigan, the home of the International Ford headquarters, uh, as we're walking around Dearborn, Michigan, full burkas, full burkas, as you're walking around, I was like, what, where, where are we? Where, where, where did we land? Uh, so the topic for today, this rise of Islam, is exceedingly important because um, I think one of the things that we have uh, uh, been surprised by is the influence of this religion on not just cultures, but on the church and how we understand what, what the... the what the purpose of Islam is, and how we are to engage with those of the Islamic faith. And the reason we're doing it in church history is uh, this, this happens around 600. We've moved through the early church and the fathers and monasticism. Bob has done a great job of kind of getting us up to speed on the early church. And this influence in about 600 AD of the world where the church used to flourish, becoming almost completely Islamic, is stunning. It's absolutely stunning to think about it, that it almost flipped. And I'll show you the map as we... Oh, by the way, do you, do you know what this structure is on the screen? Anybody know what that structure is? This is in Mecca. Um, you can't see, but that's a sea of people around the box. The box is the Kaaba, and it is a... The, the place of worship, when you, when you have a Muslim friend who is praying five times a day and is praying towards Mecca, this is what they're praying towards. It's this box. Yes, sir. That's exactly what we're going to talk about today. They do have a responsibility to do that. If you're going to observe Islamic law, then this is where you have to go. That's a sea of people around the Kaaba, and we'll talk more about that. So this is the map, uh, if, it, if I actually controlled it. Yes, this is the map of the uh, ancient Near East, the Middle East, North Africa. Uh, and for most of what Bob has taken us through in early church history, this is the spread of Christianity. This is the expanse of the Christian church. Uh, many of the leaders coming from North Africa, many coming from uh, Southern Europe and the Middle East, the Mediterranean region of the Middle East, um, all that has been the, uh, the focus of the spread of Christianity 
in 600-ish, and we'll see the dates, uh, there is a, an event that happens that, that rapidly transforms that region, where this region now is the heart of Islam. This is where Islam flourishes. It's not the only place, but this is where Islam has spent a ton of time flourishing since 600 A.D. Uh, a couple of things that I think are important. It doesn't mean, and, and, and sometimes we speak in uh, very broad language, it doesn't mean that there are no Christians there. Uh, in fact, um, one of my first trips out of the country, um, first one was Madagascar, I've told you that story, not like the movie at all, and then uh, to Egypt. Egypt is a Muslim country. It wasn't always, but it is now. And um, there are about 11 million Christians that live in Egypt. The Coptic Christian community is very influential in Egypt, but not politically. Let's just say that again. They're very influential, but not politically, because the political influence in Egypt particularly is Islamic. And when we visited there, you could tell it was a very different way to engage and shop and travel. Um, We had a Muslim guide who was in our vehicle driving us around wherever we needed to go. We're there on a a mission, short-term mission trip of sorts, but we're really doing some investigating. But he's driving us around, and he is fine to talk to us and tell us about everything. And um, he, uh, just a side note, he spoke very good English. And I just asked him, how did you learn English so well? And his answer was, kid you not, um, MTV, Michael Jackson particularly. I kid you not. MTV, Michael Jackson particularly. If you go to Africa, a lot of our uh, things that you would think, that's not the primary thing we want to export to people, they would say, that's the most important thing we think you have. We think you have entertainment as your most important export. We'll talk about that in just a minute. So he learned to speak English watching Michael Jackson videos on MTV uh, so he could uh, converse about Billie Jean. Uh, but he was very kind and cordial. And, he, and so I asked him, I said, well, we're Christian. Why is it that there's such cordiality? To he said, because here in Egypt, you're in your place. We are on top. We are the top of the pyramid. You are the people of the book. You still believe parts of what we believe but you are in your rightful place under us. And as long as we were acknowledging we were their guests, we were under their government system, we were under their rules, as long as we acknowledged that, it was great. We had a great time. But it was very clear that uh, Islamic rule was the way things were going to be. And it has been such since about 600 AD, which is when it seems like things flipped, although the church is there, right? Um, We've got... We've got a connection with um, Nick and Josh Manley, who's right in the middle, right in the middle of this map, uh, with a church that's flourishing, meeting even today, even today. So the church is there, but the dominant political influence is Islam. And I need to remind you of a, something we talked about, you know, um, in a different series, that in Islamic thinking, church, scratch that, religion and state are not separate. We have a a tradition and a good one of having the church and state being separate. In Islam, the religion of Islam and the state are one. There is no difference. It's why we have such a hard time understanding how they operate. Because the, the pluralistic understanding of maybe somebody differs from you. Maybe somebody has a different background than you do. 
Maybe somebody has a different view than you do. That is not how things operate. You are not allowed to operate under a different political system. There is a push in Dearborn, Michigan to establish Islamic law as part of their uh, community. And in our minds, we're like, what are you talking about? How can that be? And it can't be. And it will never be, Lord willing. But there is a push to say, if it's predominantly Muslim, and we want Muslim law, we want Sharia law, why is that a bad thing? There, when we were traveling, it was like, this is how it's supposed to be. You're under us. You're submitting to us. That's good. By the way, the, the word Islam itself means submit. You ever wanted to know where did, where did this word come from? It's the Arabic word for submit. Submit. I've, I've used the word oppression, but it's really submit. Um, submitting to the will of God uh, in their system. So this is the map where things kind of flip and change and turn upside down. Um, I've had a chance to be in that region a couple of times, and it is interesting and different to say the least. But the church is there. And later in church history, we've got uh, several more you know, quarters of church history to go through. We'll come to the modern missionary movement that starts in about the 1800s. And the most significant thing to happen in the Islamic world since 600 A.D., roughly, is 9-11. Because since 9-11, the missionary movement and the, uh, the spread of Christianity through the Muslim world has been remarkably good. It changed things, and is still changing things. We won't see it for a long time. There's a phenomenal book by a Southern Baptist um, missionary uh, called A Wind in the House of Islam, and we'll be looking at that a little bit a couple of semesters down in church history. But that event opened doors in the Muslim world that were never opened before. This is why when you and I start talking about uh, missions and MTW and uh, what's, I'm trying to remember my Southern Baptist backward, uh, International Mission Board, um, all those folks, almost no work, almost none, goes on in this, in this region. That's why what Josh is doing is so, is so unique and good is very little dollars for mission efforts are going into this part of the world because we see it as such a closed area. That's changing, changing pretty rapidly. But it was such a closed area for so long that we sort of left it. Let it do what it's going to do. We'll go spend mission dollars in East Africa. Very friendly, very comfortable, very nice. If you've been to Nairobi, you will, you will not find much difference than a Western capital. Very, very lovely. You go outside of the capital, it's pretty rough. But while you're there, we love sending mission dollars there because it's easier. Very few mission dollars go to this part of the world because it's so hard. Not to mention, we're fighting some political things as well, right? Why would you give dollars to a part of the world that wants to blow you up, right? That's, that's our thinking is they, want to, they, they have ill will towards us. Why would we want to give any mission dollars to that part of the world? We could do a lot more work in sub-Saharan Africa, and it's true. We could do a lot more work in India, and it's true. We could do a lot more work in China, believe it or not, and it's true, than in the Middle East. It's just a difficult, difficult place. Um, if you haven't checked into Josh's work in uh, UAE, it's fascinating. It's fascinating stuff. All right, uh, so next we're going to take a look at 
what do you know about Islam? Paul has already said, don't they have to make a trip at some point to that box? And the answer is yes. What else do you know about Islam? So these are what we're running down now are the five pillars of Islam. One of them is that you have to pray five times a day facing towards Jerusalem. And if you've been in any place where there are actually practicing Muslims, you know, they carry a, a little rug carpet with them and they'll do that. Facing the box. Face the box. That's exactly right. Um, if you've flown in and out of LaGuardia, the McNeely's aren't here, but uh, they flew out of LaGuardia this week. If you fly out of LaGuardia, you know that if you go over the underpass that comes right into LaGuardia, there are dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of prayer mats. Because when the cab drivers finish dropping you off, they're going to go over there and pray towards the box. Towards the box. All right, those two things. What else do you know about Islam? And then we'll get into what we're going to tackle. What do you know? Yeah, one of the pillars is that you have to give a portion of your salary to the needs of the poor. It's actually 2.5% if you do the math, and um, it's, it's, a, it's a requirement in Islamic law that you give 2.5% of your income to the care of the poor. So they have a built-in, uh, quote, mercy um, in their five pillars, is giving towards the needy. What else? Yeah, so what Paul's saying is it's not just submit, it's submit and consequences. Those who are not willing to submit, the consequences are pretty high. Um, Paul described it as sort of excommunication, which would affect your business as well, but it's much, much higher than that. You can have all kinds of things, including um, even the penalty of death, if you're not willing to submit. Yeah, so one of the pillars is also this fasting during the month of Ramadan, which always tends to come up if you're, if you're watching basketball uh, during the finals. It always comes up during the finals is Ramadan. I don't know why. Um, but you fast during the month of Ramadan. That, that is not a month long of no eating, no drinking. It is during daylight hours, no eating, no drinking. And then the, day, the, the dark hours, there's feasting every night, every night, because you're ready, getting ready for the next day, right? So they have this built-in fasting ritual in the month of Ramadan. That is another one. What else do you know? You know other things about Islam. They are monotheistic, and it's part of the history of Islam that made it such a powerful message uh, that changed what was going on in that part of the world pretty rapidly. Is They are monotheistic. Not just monotheistic, they would say that they are worshiping the God of Abraham. So if you do the math, and you should, the intense amount of messaging that comes from sort of an atheistic agnostic world is such a small percentage of what's out there. Most of the world is not atheistic agnostic. That's really just Western stuff. That's really just us. And it's, and it's so small even here. But we give it a lot of time and attention for lots of reasons, and I, and I would say, why? Why would we give so much time and attention to atheistic and agnostic thought when it's so small, it's influential, we should, we should combat it with, with a Christian worldview. We should combat it with biblical theory, with biblical thinking. But it's such a small piece of it. If you just take the, the people who say they follow Abraham 
and the God of the Bible or the Old Testament. Let's just do that. The God of the Old Testament. If you just talk about the people who do that, you're talking about the Jewish people, all people who follow Islam, and all people who follow Christianity, Catholic and otherwise, Catholic and Protestant. That's a pretty big chunk of the world's population. Of the 7.5 billion people out there, that's about 5 to 6 billion people that follow one of those three. The vast majority of the world's people are religious in some way, shape, or form. They believe there's a God. And even if you go past that to Hinduism and, and Buddhism, and they still believe there's a God. They just believe there's 330 million of them, right? Atheism and agnosticism is such a small piece. and We give them so much energy and time. I, I would prefer, my, and my preference and my practice has been, um, I'll answer your questions, but they're really not, they're really not serious. Because most of the world's people and most of the world's history and most of the world's evidence is there's a God. So we can talk about Dawkins and uh, Hitchens and all those guys and what they wrote and what they think. And, but the reality is they're such a small majority, uh, minority on planet Earth. The vast majority believe there's a God and the vast majority of them believe that the Old Testament God of the Bible is God. Now obviously there's a difference between the Christian view of that and the Islamic view, which is what we're going to talk about in a minute. What else do you know? Fascinating stuff. So, um, Jesus is part of Islam. And as far as they're concerned, the person of Jesus of Nazareth is a prophet in the, the religion of Islam. If you, start, if you had an Islamic friend sitting next to you at work, as I did, I would just say, who are your prophets? And they would run down the list and they would include Jesus. And they would include all the Old Testament prophets. And they would include one person in particular, Muhammad, who is the greatest prophet of all in their minds and is the last of the five pillars. You must say the creed. There's only one God, Allah. And he's his, only, his greatest prophet is Muhammad. That's the creed. When we do our confession of faith, that's their creed. They have no gathering like this. They have no preaching. They have no um, time of, of, of preaching and teaching like this. Um, they certainly do propagate Islam, but it's not like this. They, they don't have a, a, a preaching function in Islam. It's a submission function, right? We are submitting in many ways, and Jim will love to hear this. We are submitting in many ways to Jim as God has called him out to bring us his word, believing that God is speaking to us through Jim. But in lots of ways, um, there are people in here who have gifts that are different from Jim and gifted in other ways than Jim. And yet we submit ourselves Sunday after Sunday to the preaching and teaching that God has brought to us through one Jim Plunk. Um, Clint and I talked about this all the time. Isn't it amazing that God would, would call people to submit to people like you and me and Jim and R.C. Sproul, who are just clay, they're just dust. But God would call us to submit to one another as the word is being taught and preached. It's an amazing thing. So we believe in submission as well, just a very different form, uh, a willing submission um, so those are the, the pillars. Anything else that you know about Islam that you'd like to throw out there before we dive into it? Yes. Their book, their book is the Quran, and that book was, according to Muhammad, delivered to him by an angel. Does anybody know which angel? Gabriel. Gabriel is the angel that he believes came to him and delivered the message of the Quran. Now, you have to understand, most of the Islamic world is illiterate. 
Let me say that again. Most of the Islamic world is illiterate, which means the propagation of the Quran is through oral tradition, teaching, memorization that you're getting from somebody else. But it's very limited in who actually can read the Quran. In fact, the hierarchy inside of Islam is such that Arabic-speaking Muslims are the highest part of the pyramid, and everybody else submits to them. Everybody. Non-Arabic-speaking Muslims, there are lots of them. There are lots of them. The largest Muslim population on planet Earth is Indonesia. They don't speak Arabic. They're Islamic. But they don't speak any Arabic. Considered lesser than the Arabic-speaking and reading um, Muslims. And then they're all the way down the chain. We're in that pyramid too. Christians, Catholics, we're in that pyramid too as people of the book. That's That's your designation. You are people of the book. You believe in a portion of the book, right? And because of that, there's still some... Um, uh, recognition of that. There's still some recognition that you are people of the book and uh, some esteem, not a lot, but some, and you're tolerated. And then there are the people at the base of the pyramid, which are all the pagans. And pagans have a very, very, very rough time in Islamic society. Uh, and you'll see why in just a minute. So the Quran is their book, uh, supposedly given by Gabriel to Muhammad in a cave. He can't read. But he's just uh, carrying this uh, message in memory and eventually getting written down by somebody who's who's reading and writing. But you should remember this. Most of the Muslim world cannot read. We have such a... that When Jim says we're rich, it's not... We we are rich in Jesus whether you can read or not. You are rich. But some of that richness is where we were born. And who determined that but God? And what you have as a result of that, which is even in the public schools, you've got a good shot at reading by the time you get out. A good shot. Not everybody does. But you've got a good shot at it. At reading by the time you get out. And reading alone um, makes you um, certainly, it's, a, it's an advantage just to be able to read and think whoever's thoughts are after them and say, is that right, is that wrong? Right? Uh, anything else you know about Islam before we dive into the slides? What else do you know? Oh, absolutely. It's influencing the world right now, these two different divisions. After, after Muhammad dies, and he does die, and he's buried, and he never gets up, significant division, significant difference. After he dies, the Islamic world splits and splits into two tracks. Do you, you might know what the two tracks are? Sunni and Shia, and um, you know, they, they each claim to be the, the, the real ones. They each claim to be the real ones. And as you go throughout the world political theater and see which Islamic nations are doing what, you can kind of guess which ones are Sunni, which ones are Shia, right? Iran, do you know? Shia. Saudi Arabia, Sunni. So if you've got any kind of um, uh, political influence meter, you can see kind of which ones follow which track. And they kind of debate each other, right? They don't like each other um, to the point where they go to war with each other. What else? That's exactly right. There's two tracks. Anybody else? Yeah, you're going to exhaust my, even my understanding of the number of uh, sects because they do branch out in these wild streams and even old Sean can't keep up with them. 
Anything else that you know about Islam that you, before we jump in? All right. Oh, a slide that you can't read. How about that? <clears throat> um, so even Sean is going to... So 570 AD is the birth of Muhammad. Muhammad is born um, to um, uh, these, these parents in the Middle East, and he is um, quickly orphaned. And he is raised, <clears throat> travels with a couple of um, business people. Basically, they're, they're traders. They're along the trade routes of the Middle East. And those trade routes take them into um, all kinds of communities, including communities that are Christian, including communities that are, um, at the times, sort of the Roman Catholic uh, world. And he engages with those even in commerce. And he learns a ton about commerce and about the other cultures and is, has an affinity for monotheism. And there's a reason for that because in his place, Mecca particularly, there is a rancid idolatry that's been going on for quite some time. Rancid. In fact, there are about 360 different idols set up at that box, the Kaaba. As Muhammad is born and lives his life, there are about 360 different idols set up. 360, you might hazard a guess as to why? One for each day of the year, and the calendar year at that time, and in the Jewish calendar year, is 360, right? Not 365. 360, 12 months, 30 days, 360. So one for each day of the year. Just kind of fathom that. There is an idol set up at the Kaaba for people who are worshiping all these different gods um, in Mecca <clears throat> at this place. And this place is considered to be holy in, in the sense of um, the Protestant, uh, the the a Christian world. This is, a, this is an Abrahamic site. This is where an event in Abraham's life takes place and they value it. And, um, and Muhammad begins to seethe at the notion that there are all these idols set up in Mecca around this holy site. This is the background. This is the, the life he's been living. He's traveling a good bit. He's, in, he's involved in business. Um, he learns that business very, very well. He ends up marrying uh, a woman who's involved in that business, um, much, much older than he is. Uh, there are many, many marriages for Muhammad. This is one of the differences that we'll talk about in a second. Uh, but this is the first one. And learns a ton about that part of the world, trade, about the, the various religions that are out there. And, and by the way, this is, this is something we don't think about as much as we should, is that um, in the founding of America, we, we, we don't hear anything about Islam. Or at least we don't normally hear anything about Islam. This is one of those complaints you have where you say, you know, I went to high school, and I went to college, and they had history classes, and I don't remember anything about Islam and the U.S. and all these things. Um, Islam was very well known. Just like for, for Muhammad, Christianity was well known. He was exposed to it a lot. <clears throat> Islam was very well known, even to our founding fathers, right? Anybody know who wrote a, a volume of work on Islam? Anybody know which of our founding fathers did that? Ooh. Jefferson wrote a volume on the religion of Islam and its influence on the U.S. And in that sense, the influence was this. We were involved in trade routes to North Africa. When you go to, the, to that part of the world, you had to sail. And sailing was treacherous. The Barbary pirates were Islamic pirates. 
And every time a U.S. vessel would enter in, they would either get kidnapped or, or plundered or whatever would happen. And so um, Washington, for years, just paid the ransom. Just pay the ransom, get them back here. Just pay the ransom. And got them back. Jefferson decided, I'm not going to do that. I need to figure out what makes these people tick. And did a full study of the, the religion of Islam and the background of Islam and wrote a volume on it and decided we're not going to pay the ransom because it's not going to stop anything. We're going to have to go to war. Uh, if you know the Marine Hymn, the very beginning of the Marine Hymn references that war. The falls of Montezuma, the shores of Tripoli. That's right. To the shores of Tripoli, the Marine Hymn. And um, so I, I've, I've worked in the uh, military depot office uh, where Barnhart is now. Uh, and when you went in there, it was like a graveyard of military stuff. And one of the things I found that I kept is there are, uh, there's a military artist who just depicted scenes from military history, particularly for the Marines. And several of those uh, paintings are of military battles in the Mediterranean, in North Africa. Uh, the USS Constitution is the, one of the first ships that went in that Jefferson gave um, direction, go in, fight, put a stop to all this. So we, we do have some understanding of the influence of Islam in American history. I think we have intentionally said, that's a different place, don't need to think about that as much, uh, and I think that's going to swing around. But certainly influencing the history of the church. So 570, he is born, and 610 is the night of power. This is the night where uh, uh, Muhammad goes into a cave to kind of retreat and rest, and while he is there, he is visited in, in his report by the angel Gabriel in his, in his mind, and receives the Quran and begins to uh, receive the message of the Quran to the point where he is memorizing and sharing it with others who can write, and the Quran is transcribed uh, according to um, Muhammad's report. In 622, there is, um, there is conflict between uh, Muhammad and what he wants to do, which, just think about it, now he's... He's shifting over to monotheism. He is in um, the Mecca, Medina region, and he is seething about the idolatry that's going on. That leads some conflict because a lot of the idolatry is connected to trade, connected to the marketplace. If you don't think idolatry is connected to our marketplace, you are incorrect. Uh, Jim's sermon this morning was like, you need to there's a lot of idolatry happening as we exchange money for stuff. Yeah, the Elijah one I'm not, I'm not tracking with, but in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul comes into uh, Ephesus, and in that city, the, almost the entire marketplace is around the worship of Diana. And as Paul preaches the Christ of the Gospels, and people repent and come to him, the sale of Diana merchandise, the merch, is affected to the point where a riot breaks out, and they get these guys out of here. Get these Christians out of here because they are causing problems with the dollar. Well, their dollar. They're causing problems with our business. Uh, so yeah, if you're, if you're not convinced that the marketplace has idolatry connected to it, it does. And even for Muhammad, it was a, it was a problem. He sees these 360 idols, and there's conflict and battle. He flees to Medina. Medina is a nearby city. 
uh, different name at the time, Medina now. But he flees to Medina, and this is uh, seen as the start of the Islamic calendar. This first conflict that drives Muhammad to Medina is seen as the beginning of the Islamic calendar, 622 AD. Here's why that's so important. According to the Muslims, there is no before calendar. There are things that happen. There are things that take place. There's certainly history, but none of that matters. Only what ma- all that matters is the line of Islamic thought beginning on 622 A.D. Their calendar, that's their zero. That's the beginning, is 622. The flight to Medina marks the beginning. While he's in Medina, he is also continuing to, to fight, build an army, and he's, he's no slouch when it comes to military warfare. None. Uh, quite skilled, quite good, and raises a, a significant army that's willing to do the same. So in um, 630 A.D., he returns to Mecca, and he returns with an army and routes the city of Mecca and cleanses this Kaaba of idols. There are no more idols after that day. Well, no more idols that you can see. There's still an idol. That's the idol of Islam. But the Kaaba is cleansed of those standing idols, 360, and from that day forward, this, is, this has been the the place of Islam where part of your responsibility as a Muslim is to travel to Mecca at some point in your life. If you want to be saved, if you want to enter into the presence of Allah, you must make a travel to Mecca and march around, it's called the Hajj, is that pilgrimage, and march around the Kaaba and be a part of that experience. Um, For those of you in American history, you know that that experience is what changed Malcolm X from uh, sort of the... Um, intense, separatist to a more modified, saw things differently when he got there because he was not included. He's a lesser Muslim. He's a lesser Muslim. So this Hajj is part of the Muslim ritual that you have to go and participate in on some point in your life, at least one time in your life. And that's a result of um, Muhammad's battle in 630 where he cleanses, knocks out all those idols. The only remaining idol is Islam, and it is an idol. Uh, 632, Muhammad dies, and the caliphs that succeed him battle and split. That's why you have the Sunni, that's why you have the Shia, that's why you continue to see battles raging throughout the, the Muslim world that you and I don't understand. You and I don't get it. Um, there are other things that you and I don't get about Islam and things that we probably um, need to at least reconcile with how we are going to engage with the gospel. All right, Heath. How did Islam spread, spread so fast? Well, the nature of Islam expansion was based on conquest, and they were good fighters. And it was, it was very quick to go from uh, that part of the world being primarily um, mixed and Christian and to flopping completely to Islam and that was by the ex- expansion of conquest and battle. Uh, Islam is a very, very bloody religion. If you want to, you can spend your whole life studying the bloody conquest of the Islamic forces. Uh, the conversion of those conquered to Islam. So um, Christianity is often criticized for um, lots of things. I'll just say lots of things. But not the least of which is as Christianity spread, there was some uh, movement by those who are not the best representatives of Christianity, I would say are not uh, people that we would say, oh, that's what we want to see. 
uh, with the request, shall I say, different from request, the command, convert or die. There were Christians who were involved, people who claimed to be Christians, how about that, who were involved in the command to convert or die as Christianity spread. Exactly the same thing with our, uh, the Islamic uh, spread. They would conquer a land and the requirement was convert or die. Convert or die. Now, not everybody did, not everybody was, was killed. And this last reason is, is something that's really interesting, is this status called the people of the book. That if you have some connection to what is, uh, the Islamic world says is valuable, Old Testament, <clears throat> um, if you honor the prophet Jesus, things of that nature, um, they would say, you have, you have some status among us. No political status. You have no power. But you can, you can exist, you can live, you can do things, but you have no power. You'll have no political influence in that world. Because all the political influence, the state, is Islam. And so you can't be... We have an amazing country. We, we were started with the understanding that there are going to be people who differ with each other from the very beginning. And they fought like cats and dogs too. They did. We just see it all the time now in unhealthy ways. But they fought like cats and dogs too. Over lots of different things. But it's amazing now that you can have you know, Catholics serving in office and Protestants and uh, you have Muslims serving in office now in federal government. Um, that, our, that our system makes um, allowance for because we have this separation. We have this separation. In the Islamic world, there is no separation, and so you'll never have any political influence, ever, 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 ever. Mother Teresa, in an Islamic world, would still be a servant class, no matter what. And she would be okay with that. She would be fine with being servant class. Yes. Very different. Very different. Perfect. So a significant difference is in conversion in Christianity, you have the work of the Spirit and the work of the very God of the universe changing your heart. In Islam, just like in uh, as Bob described, in the, um, in the Roman world, when the church was not welcome, did not have any rights, they would say, you, you must say Caesar is Lord. And if you just said it, they were okay. It didn't mean you weren't a Christian anymore, although the church would look, would look differently at you. The church would look differently at you. But in Islam, all you've got to say is, yeah, I'm, I'm one of y'all. I'm one of y'all. And secretly be. So there's a lot of that going on in, in the Islamic world, too, where you are Islamic by culture, but secretly... You are a Muslim background believer. That's the, the key phrase, the key word, the MBB. If you want to know anything about the missions effort in the Middle East, the MBB is the key right now, the Muslim background believer who's kind of living quietly as a Christian inside of the Islamic world. But you'll never have political power, ever. Ever, 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 ever. <clears throat> because you have different rights. Those are the five pillars. We've talked about those. Uh, did anything that we missed? Nope, 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 nope. Keep going. All right, so this is the um, a summary of notes on the Christian approach to Islam. These are the things that we would say we should think about. Um, and we should kind of understand as Christians when it comes to 
the influence of Islam, not just here, but around the world, and how the church, this is a church history class, how the church is to, um, is to engage. Uh, I, I, I'm careful to use the word respond, but the church is always responding. I would say engage. This is how we're to engage. So the first one is uh, desire. Desire that they come to know Jesus and join you in heaven. Um, we had Muslim neighbors living next door to us in Mobile when we lived there, and our interaction with, with them and with our kids was, let's just pray that they come to know Jesus and that they would one day see him face-to-face with us. That's, let's start there. Just desire it, right? Desire that the Muslim world, uh, along with Josh Manley and everybody that's working in that church today and churches all over the Middle East and North Africa, that they would come to know Jesus. That's a great desire to have. Um, it's, t- it's tougher for, for uh, Americans to have that desire, but may God give us that desire. Secondly, that we would work to serve the neighborhood, the neighborhood including those who differ from you. And that's sort of a more general statement than just Islam. Um, we are set up as a nation to have differences that are worked out in a very uh, parliamentary process, a lack of a better word, Presbyterian process. It's very Presbyterian. It takes a long time to get things done. No one can change things and turn it around on a dime. You just can't do it. You can, you can write executive orders all day long, and they're going to get overturned if they're not consistent with the Constitution. There's, we have a very grinding process, right? <clears throat> but we are called to be in the same neighborhoods uh, with people who differ from us. There are a lot of people in your neighborhood who do not share your views, that are not Christian. And by the way, they keep their lawn better, Right? Their, their um, landscaping is better than yours in some ways. And that frustrates you. But still, um, they're different from us. That's okay. We're called to work, to serve our neighbors. Um, make it a commitment to listen and then speak without caricature or distortion. Um, there, there, is a, there are some things that a, uh, a Muslim neighbor would see as very, very rude. Extremely rude. Um, some of those... Um, as a Christian, we, we can't deny. We're not going to deny it. But we can be careful. Um, an example of that is, uh, you know of the incident in Paris where a magazine published a cartoon about the prophet Muhammad that didn't cast him in a particularly good light and the eruption in Paris over the, the, the murders in Paris that re- erupted as a result um, primarily because there's an entire generation, second generation of Muslim uh, immigrants that have come into France. That first generation came in to say, we just want a better place to live. We like to live here. We like to work here. We'll do whatever we have to. We'll serve you. That's fine. Second generation is like, none of that for us. None of that for us. We want what we want. And several of those uh, were part of the, the murders connected to that cartoon. Uh, because in Islam... There is a requirement that, that Muhammad cannot be pictured. So in some ways, we have a second commandment requirement of there are no images, no, um, and there's debates even over can, you, can the Jesus storybook Bible who has Jesus shown as a cartoon character from behind, is that a good thing or a bad thing? In Islam, there is no question. You do not show it. The only thing you show of Muhammad is his name written in Arabic, and it looks, I can, I can draw it, I just did. I can draw it for you. His name written in Arabic, that's okay. Any image... You have crossed the line. There are lots of punishments for that. And in their minds, completely justified if that goes really, really bad. Completely justified in, in the way they think about it. So the same, the, the same thinking for us of why would you, why would you try to um, 
capture such a worthy um, um, part of our religion in an image that cannot do it. If you want to know the argument behind the second commandment violations of Jesus in a storybook Bible, I'll give you the, the quick summary. How in the world can you capture anything of a, a person who is both 100% God and 100% man in an image of any kind? Even the Pieta, which is a remarkable piece of art. Remarkable. And it is, it is all that can be demonstrated there is that Jesus was a man. And that's not who he was. He's 100% God and 100% man. So J.I. Packer, in Knowing God, gives this remarkable argument on why we, we, we avoid any images. Any images. I know there are exceptions to that. People take exceptions to it all the time. But the reality is, um, of course, no images of God. That would be, that would be abhorrent. Um, but even in the images of the, the faces of the religion, and for Muslim people, that's a no-no. You just can't do it. But sometimes we caricature what they believe, and you wouldn't want that done for you. Why would you want to do that for others? Um, there are other things that I would say, we've got no choice but to say it. So, for example, when we say Jesus is the Son of God, that is abhorrent to, uh, to, to Muslim ears. Why? why? Why would Jesus being the Son of God be abhorrent to a Muslim? That would make him God. Uh, they believe in only one God, and Muhammad is his prophet. But more importantly, they believe that, that, that God cannot have any relationship. That's, that speaks of sexuality. That speaks of birth. That speaks of no, 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 no. There is no son. And we would say, well, we differ. I, I, Sean would say to my Muslim friends, well, Jesus is the son of God. And we'll just have to differ. Yeah, we're, we're not going to, well, we, we won't in Hernando. In Hernando, we don't do it. But historically, there have been. Yeah. Yeah, our approach, our approach these days would not be, if you, if you affront me, I'm going to kill you. Um, and, and Islam, if you violate that, you could be, you could be killed. Uh, don't mislead. Uh, uh, don't mislead them by thinking that we are worshiping the same God. Uh, I hear a lot of my Christian uh, friends who want to ameliorate what we're saying by saying, well, it's all the same, right? It's like the, the Jewish people are worshiping the same God that we are, and Islam is worshiping the same God that we are, and you cannot mislead them. Oh, you can't mislead them. There is no comparison between the God of the universe, one God in three persons, and um, rejecting Israel and Islam. Okay, good. That's great. They actually do. They're, they're people of the book. They're allowed in the pyramid as long as they submit. It's the problem of submission is the, is the issue. They, they would say, uh, one of us is going to submit to the other, and right soon. And right soon. Uh, finally, understand the gospel to such a degree that human efforts are easily identified versus faith in the finished work of Jesus. What I mean by that is, those five things that you have to do to be saved, the gospel says none of that saves you. The gospel says only the finished work of Jesus saves anybody. 
Because that's the only work that actually has any merit. Everything else, your work, is tainted by your sin, and they have a doctrine of sin. It's tainted by your sin. In fact, in many ways, they don't see there's any forgiveness at all. It's really sad. But you're tainted by your sin, and so even your efforts to march around the, the Kaaba are nothing. It's garbage. I wouldn't say that to my Muslim friend on the first, on the first meeting. I wouldn't say your whole thing is garbage. But I would say none of that matters because none of what I do matters in the sense of earning my salvation. Everything that we teach is that what you do to earn your salvation is filthy rags before a holy God. Only the work of Jesus is significant. Now, I have, we're already over. I've got to say this one thing. Jesus is mentioned more in the Quran than Muhammad is. If you read the Quran, you will find more references to Jesus and his life than you will to Muhammad. They esteem Jesus very highly, not highly enough. In fact, Jesus would say, I reject what you say about me, just as he did to Peter. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah. If you guys said, Sean, you, you remind me of Elijah, I would go, that's awesome. That's great. Jesus would say, I reject that because it's not enough. He is God himself in human flesh. So a lot of what's happening in the Muslim world right now, and we'll get to it in the further semesters when we start talking about uh, missions, is um, this crisis of thinking on, am I really a, a Muslim that believes those things? And as the, those folks who do get exposure to the Quran start, Jesus seems like a much, much more admirable person. Then they'll start doing this. Who is Jesus? And many times, they'll be sent to a website where Byron gets on and says, let me tell you about Jesus. Yes? Many times. Who is Jesus? That will save for the missions effort. Final questions, comments, anything you want to add, subtract? Is this helpful? It does tell you what the church has had to experience and engage with for about 1400 years now yes Um, yeah, it's one of, I think there are four or five others that are in the area. The Islamic uh, Center in, um, off of Houston Levy Road is the largest. Um, Hillary, when she had her school going, uh, took the kids there, got a chance to engage. I was there to ask questions uh, and talk. There's a, there's a continued growth. Um, there's always a tension um, between true Islamic culture and, and ours. One of them is... Um, so there's a book that's called Why the Rest Hate the West. Why the rest of the world can't stand the western part of the world. And you could point to Islam and Christianity as a source of uh, division and conflict and tension, and that's true. But what other things are being said is culturally what in our community um, is promoted versus what in, in the Islamic community is promoted. So here's an example. The number one export of the U.S., the Western world, U.S. being 
the, the anchor of the West. The number one export for us is it's entertainment. It is entertainment. Under the category of entertainment includes things like movies, music, all that stuff, but also included under the category of entertainment is pornography. And when you, if you know anything about Osama bin Laden's capture and death, what they found were stacks and 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 stacks, which they would say is the is the deterioration of the family, and we would agree. It's the deterioration. It's an attack on family, attack on community. It's attack on marriage, which they have a different view of marriage, even the number of people that you can marry, and how you can divorce. Different view. But a lot of the rest of the world would say what you are cranking out in the, in the West is aimed at our community and the destruction of our community. And that's why we have so much tension. John would say, and let's have that discussion. Let's have the discussion if, if, what, if what is destroying your family and our families is, um, is what you're saying are these two communities at war. I would say it's sin, and I would say the answer to that is the gospel of Jesus. Father, we do thank you for the day. Thank you for giving us uh, time around your word and around the Lord's table. Uh, This is such a delight and a pleasure for people who love you, that you have called out of darkness into light. Father, there are many around the world still groping in darkness. And it's our prayer, um, even, even with the small efforts that we make, that you would open eyes, that you would change hearts. Only your spirit can do that. Only your word can do that. And that you would bring people into a relationship with you through the work of Jesus and his work alone. Father, that's what we came here today to celebrate. Help us to do that with our neighbors, regardless of the differences with us. Help us to um, go with the heart to serve and to communicate the greatness of our Lord, King of the universe, and the one who did everything necessary for gathering a people for yourself. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.